As you've heard, the theme of the conference in Kansas City was on the way. I believe people journeying to the conference knew that this gathering could involve pain and sadness. But I didn't realize how broad this feeling would be and how it would become an overarching theme for me during those days. Delegates and others attending sessions experienced pain and sadness around the resolutions, and especially the two related to same-sex issues, which we'll be talking about during Sunday School. Advocates for full LGBTQ inclusion in the Church held a worship service on the first evening with the theme of Bound Together, Together Free. Over 200 people gathered for that meeting at the Grace and Holy Trinity Cathedral, an ornate Episcopal church next to the convention center. The service opened with Patrick Ressler, who some of you know, leading O Healing River. Updates were given by four advocate groups, Brethren Mennonite Council, Inclusive Pastors, Our Stories Untold, and Pink Menno. The gathering had a sense of hopeful anticipation that the decisions of the week may bring change, although with the recognition that pain may need to occur for this to happen was expressed by Sarah Clausen, who gave the message, quote, you can't have a quilt unless something has been ripped apart. Many of those in attendance have experienced great pain from the Mennonite Church. They're confounded by this pain and rejection coming from a church who claims to be a peace church. Another service was held at the same cathedral near the end of the week, this time a service of lament and hope for those who have experienced sexual abuse. Chuck Neufeld, who has spent time with us, led the group in reflective healing music. Near the end of the service, when people were invited to come forward to be anointed, half of the group went forward. Violation of individuals is more prevalent than we want to acknowledge. On my way over to the service, someone I know well told me of her own abuse at age nine. She wanted me to know this so if the memories of pain became too intense during the service, I would not be surprised if she walked out. She did not. The service brought another level of healing for her. Pain and sadness was also present at the seminar Marlon and I attended on the Doctrine of Discovery. Marlon will talk more about this. A group of indigenous people and others across the Mennonite Church have developed and made available material and resources for churches. This is something I would like to study more, possibly in an elective here. I left the conference with heaviness and uncertainty for the Mennonite Church. On our road trip back to PA, Marlon and I read Ori Miller's biography, My Calling to Fulfill. Ori was an institution builder. As a dynamic Mennonite leader of the 20th century, he helped create many of the institutions we currently know, and especially MCC. Friday evening, 
this past Friday evening at a Lancaster Mennonite Historical Society event, John Sharp, who wrote Ori's biography, was asked at the end if Ori would be a leader today. John replied that he was certain he would be, but in a different way. John wrote these reflections in his epilogue to Ori's story. Ori founded no institution to serve itself. When an institution no longer serves the church, he would have asked, what is the basis for its continued existence? In his blog for the Mennonite, Phil Niss, pastor of Parkview Mennonite Church in Harrisonburg, Virginia, wrote this experience from the conference. Quote, structures we built in the past may need to be renovated or partially dismantled. We may need to construct something altogether new to support the vital church-to-church and disciple-to-disciple relationships I know are possible, unquote. My prayer for us here at East Chestnut Street is that we envision a church that the next generation can embrace, a church of peace for all. May we, on our journey here, discern what to hold on to tightly and what to hold on more lightly as we walk with Jesus on the way. I'm going to talk about two workshops that I attended. The first was uh, the Corinthian Plan and the Affordable Care Act. The Corinthian Plan is the health plan for pastors in uh, congregations in the Mennonite Church USA. The Corinthian Plan's name emerges from verses in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, where the newly emerging congregations in Corinth is encouraged to practice sharing with each other. So the Corinthian plan, which is a health plan, continues in its mission to provide access to affordable group health coverage for eligible congregations. The plan is built on the idea that wealthier churches will contribute to a subsidy fund that makes it possible for less wealthy churches to pay less. So in 2014, uh, there were 400 congregations participating in the Corinthian plan, covering about 976 people. And that same number has continued into 2015. The Corinthian plan has added some valuable wellness incentives, coaching, and other resources. And at the same time, as you know, the Affordable Care Act and the insurance marketplace is also in its second year of implementing a federal health care program. But there remains a lot of confusion and uncertainty about how that implementation affects churches and small businesses. So the Corinthian plan continues, continues to be vital, providing subsidies to less wealthy congregations and good health care to many pastors. The second workshop I attended was titled Indigenous, Mennonite, or Both by Sarah Augustine. 
And Sarah shared her experiences being a Native American and also an Anabaptist. This was one of several workshops on the referencing the topic doctrine of discovery. Now here's a warning. When you first hear about the doctrine of discovery, it can lead to skepticism, to defensiveness, indifference, anger, depression, but possibly understanding and hope. Sarah began by asking us each to think about who lived on the land where we currently have our homes and our apartments and our gardens. Who were those people? What were they called? I'm going to ask you to turn to your neighbor and just talk about that. Do you know the names of who lived in the land that you live as native indigenous people? Take 30 seconds to do that. Now, she allowed this to go on. She asked other questions about what we've learned from each other. She asked, do you know where these people went? How many were there? And are there any descendants of these people still living today? It's estimated that there were 95 million indigenous people living in North America when the first Europeans arrived. But after the United States extermination, they were down to about 1 million. So this seminar challenges our assumptions about discovering land and what it meant for Mennonites especially to acquire land in North America. See, for centuries, Mennonites in Europe were known as good farmers, building up the land, using crop rotation. Governments in Europe welcomed and encouraged them to settle newly acquired lands. And John Sharp, writing in Ori Miller's biography, talks about Mennonites and Amish following very closely after the U.S. military deported Chief Shipshawana and his Potawatomi people out of what's now known as northern Indiana. And this included Ori Miller's family. And then Sharp goes on to say that today a million tourists annually visit the tiny town of Shipshawana, named for the Potawatomi chief. They 
visit not to remember his people, but to see the Amish who now live there. This taking of land is known as the doctrine of discovery, and it was justified by the church in the 15th and 16th century through papal decrees. They were called papal bulls. And they were sanctioned, they sanctioned Christian enslavement and power over non-Christians. These papal bulls gave Christian explorers the right to lay claim to any land that was not inhabited by Christians, as it was then available to be discovered. And if its inhabitants could be converted, they might be spared, but if not, they would be enslaved or killed. And scripture was used to support this taking of land. This idea continued into North America as Mennonites, also wanting to make a better life for themselves, join in the settlement of the New World. And they join in the Western migration into other states as we know today. So the idea that if you are Christian, you have the right, the legal right, to take the property of a non-Christian. That's the doctrine of discovery. For Mennonites and Amish, it made sense. If the land was vacant or if it was underutilized, they could make better use of it by farming it. So it's not a surprise to find stories of Amish and Mennonites settling land that was forcibly taken from the native people. Mennonites also joined in the assimilation efforts of native people by starting Indian boarding schools, taking children from their families in an effort to destroy the native culture and the native way of life. And today we see this doctrine's modern influence uh, reemerging recently in the debate about racism and the exploitation of Native American sports mascots. It's justified efforts to eliminate indigenous languages, practices, and worldviews. And today, it continues to affect Native American sovereignty, sovereignty and treaty obligations. So what do we think about this land, this idea that some people have the right to take land away from others. Visiting this past is difficult, and sometimes we don't want to face the pain and suffering and shame. We don't have answers. But we are challenged to be people of peace and justice. We want to act righteously, which means to put things right. It is good to accept that this was wrong, and that we now need to deal with those consequences of those actions. Now, we don't want the doctrine of discovery to be paralyzing, but rather we want to use this knowledge and the privilege that we have to stand beside others, to go along with those who are still struggling with being dispossessed of resources dispossessed of opportunities and dispossessed of human rights.
So I hadn't looked at um, the words to this first before I wrote what I was going to say today. And um, I just think it's really ironic. I think God's good. Um, Just the words again. And that evening at the table, as he blessed and broke bread, we saw it was Jesus, arisen from the dead. Though he vanished before us, we knew he was near. The life in our dying and the hope in our fear. So now, though I was nervous about what I had to say, I feel affirmed. (laughs) So I first want to thank um, you as a church body for blessing me to go as your delegate to this convention, especially since I recently moved out of state, though this is still my home. This experience was no doubt challenging, but also a wonderful opportunity to grow in my faith. So thank you. There's a really good chance I'm going to cry, too, but it wouldn't be a true reflection of my week if I didn't, because there was a lot of that. Um, I just feel challenged today to fully express myself and my experiences in my own voice, because I've engaged in numerous rich conversations, both at convention and after, that have me working to decipher between my own thoughts and impressions and those of others. And I'm sure some of you have experienced that, maybe not having been there and read the blogs or seen the posts and really just trying to figure out where your thoughts are, too. So today's reflection may include both my original thoughts and those of others I love and respect who have walked this journey with me over the past weeks. I invite you during this reflection to sit down at my table. We gather as a part of the Church of Jesus Christ, one body with many members, a holy temple, a spiritual house, with Jesus Christ as our foundation. This was a section of the reading from our first session as delegates. In the time following the convention, I've spent time reflecting on the difficult task of holding a business meeting and a church service at the same time. This is just one of the examples of the tensions held during our week in Kansas City. I went into this experience apprehensive. I feared what the church may look like at the end, but mostly I feared how we would interact with and treat one another throughout. And I will be honest that at times I saw glimpses of these fears realized. But my saving grace was Table 72, my community for the week. And I believe you saw a picture of us, too. I even would often slip when in conversation with others and refer to them as my church. Like, oh, yeah, my church was talking. I mean, Table 72. Deborah, Bob, Marilyn, Mel, Bill, Sue Ann, George, and later in the week, boy. They gave me hope for what the church can be in the midst of tension. Through the first resolutions voted on, faithful witness amidst endless war and Israel-Palestine, we shared openly and gracefully with one another. Each of us fell into some natural roles as we became more comfortable. George asked the probing questions, challenging us to go deeper. Marilyn, our table leader, was a natural servant, allowing all others to speak before taking the talking stone and sharing her thoughts on the topic. Deborah, a seminary student, shared her non-ethnic Mennonite perspective, helping to round out the discussion. Bill brought comic relief at the perfect moments, and Bob provided snacks, a much-needed gift during these meetings. The ability for us to create community was made possible by each person's willingness to come to the table with open minds and hearts truly believing that each person came with the best of intentions. 
I felt that we lived out what we had covenanted together during our first meeting, to assume the best intentions of all persons who participate at this table and in this assembly, to pray for one another and the assembly leaders, to be patient and kind, to speak honestly and directly, to practice humility and be willing to change or be corrected, to listen actively and carefully, to respect the views of those who may not agree with the majority, to respect the wisdom of the greater assembly and of those at our assigned tables. The commitment to this covenant was demonstrated as we listened to Mel share that his conference may consider leaving MCUSA if the forbearance resolution passed, and when Bill and Deborah embraced after a session in which they shared opposing views. Several of us had very emotional reactions, myself included, to the demonstration by a young woman from the LGBTQ community on Thursday morning that seemed to intensify an already anxious environment. We listened with grace and understanding as several of the members put words to the emotions they expressed in reaction to this at the prompting of George's genuine questions. Building community takes work, hard work, but the result can be a beautiful demonstration of differences laced with grace when all participants are willing to acknowledge their fear and surrender their need for certainty. Dale Schrag spoke at the Friday morning service, reflecting on the story from Luke 24. Certitude, or absolute certainty, is a common thing in our society. He challenged us by stating that certitude is an impediment to genuine hospitality. It's close to claiming God-like omniscience. We are not God We cannot go with absolute certainty, he stated. He went on to say, perhaps uncertainty is a gift, a gift of grace. I felt most compelled when he asked, if everyone on all sides of divisive issues admitted uncertainty, how would things be different? Following his message, we had a service of anointing. And typically at these types of services, I'm really quick to participate often becoming emotional, wanting so badly to be healed from whatever it is that ails me. But this time was different. I sat there grieving for the church I love. As I continued to sit and watch my brothers and sisters weep openly, felt the tensions and sensed genuine desire for wholeness. I stood, walked to the back of the massive room that we were gathered in. I stretched out my arms as far as they could go, and I lifted my prayers for the church to God. And in that moment, my heart settled, and the words from a familiar hymn ran through my mind. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Oh, for grace to trust him more. Table 72 became my church that week. We cried together, laughed together, and prayed together. There was love, there was grace, there was humility. As I carry the weight of what our votes might mean, and I feel again the deep emotions of that week, I find hope in remembering the church at Table 72.